Well, good morning. Welcome to First Baptist Church. We're so glad that you have joined us for worship, whether here in person or online. We are glad that you've joined us, and we do pray and trust that God will speak to you in the ways that you need to hear from him today. <clears throat> Excuse me. Well, I've got to be honest, uh, coming out of Romans, I really wasn't sure what to do next. Uh, I, I know there are different thoughts on how long a sermon series should be, but I apologize to no one for doing a 16-week series in a book with 16 chapters. And I know it, it, went, it was a long thing that took us all the way through summer, but I really did enjoy Romans. And I came to the end of it and came into this week, and for the first time in 16 weeks since really... We planned that service series out back in, in the spring. So the first time since the spring, I had to think about, well, what am I going to preach on this week? And the fact is, I only have a kind of short window because we have stewardship coming up, and then we have Advent, which is much closer than we would care to admit, right around the corner. And so I'm like, what am I going to do to shoehorn? What are we going to do that's just going to cover a few weeks here or there, that, that maybe just a two-week quick in and out? And, and I thought to myself, you know what, I've, I've never done a sermon on Jude. And I'm like, well, maybe, maybe we'll just break that down. It's a short book, right? One chapter, just right there, boom, in and out, we're done, and, and we'll move on. So I decided that last week and, and began thinking about where we were going to go this week. And a thought continued to, like, reverberate in my mind and in my heart. And it was this, I really have no idea what Jude is about. I don't, I don't know where you stand with that, but, but I've only ever heard the book of Jude referenced a couple of times, and usually in conjunction with, with the verse that says, um, contend for the faith, right? That's the verse that we like to use. He says in verse uh, 3, the latter half, I compelled, I'm compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. So I've heard people use it in reference to that one verse that we're, we're to fight for the faith, right? Hands up, let's go to town, defending what the Bible says. And that's great. That's great. I understand where people are trying to go. And then also when people begin talking about angels and demons, well, you get a little bit later and it talks about the, the issue of, of disrespecting and, and talking to demons and how even Angel, the archangel in verse 9, or Mike, Michael, the archangel, when he was disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not dare to condemn him for slander, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So those are the only verses that I've really ever in, in any kind of manner heard people reference in the book of Jude, and it's usually in the context of proof texting, right? They're actually preaching somewhere else is what I mean by that, and they need something to support their argument, and so they come to Jude for that. So I found myself thinking over and over and over again, well, what is the book of Jude really about? Like, really, is that what he's trying to say? Is that the point he's trying to make? And what was going on at that time that, that made Jude write this letter? We know what was going on with Corinthians. Paul disambiguates pretty clearly. We know about the idolatry. We know about the, the temples in Corinth. We know about the, the prolific nature of or ubiquity of, of sexual sin in the area. We know what was going on in Rome. We understand the reality of the rise of the empire and the difficulty of Christians with making that connection. The, the Gospels, we understand what's going on with Jesus and his coming and the difficulties with, with the Pharisees and, and the, the issues between Samaritans and Jews. Those are things that people talk about early and often. But Jude, really, Jude is like just an entry into Romans, and we skirt over it. So I started this Monday 
or Tuesday, working on putting together notes, thinking that it would just be a quick two-week series that we would do 16 verses this week and then the rest of them next week. And by the end of Tuesday, I had four and a half pages of notes and I had covered two verses. And I thought to myself, self, this is not going to be as short of a series as you thought it was. So I don't, I don't really apologize for this, but it's going to be, it's going to be kind of uh, Bible nerdy, which is more for me than for you because I enjoy that. I enjoy getting down into it. So we're going to like do a deep dive into Jude and consider what was this little short letter really about. And so as we get started, let's read through the book and see what Jude has to say to us this morning. It says this, Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Now, dear friends, although I was very eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of God into a license for immorality and deny Jesus Christ, our only sovereign and Lord. Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their position of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on that great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They served as an example to those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. But even the archangel Michael, when he was disposing, disputing with the devil about the body of Moses, did not himself dare to condemn him for slander, but said, The Lord rebuke you. Yet these people slander whatever they do not understand. And the very things they do not understand, they do understand by instinct, as irrational animals do, will destroy them. Woe to them! They have taken the way of Cain. They have rushed for profit into Balaam's error. They have destroyed, been destroyed in Korah's rebellion. These people are blemishes at your love feast, eating with you without the slightest qualm, shepherds who feed only themselves. They are clouds without rain, blown along by the wind. Autumn trees without fruit and uprooted, twice dead. They are wild waves of the sea, foaming up their shame. Wandering stars for whom blackest darkest darkness has been reserved forever. Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied about them. See, the Lord is coming with thousands upon thousands of his holy ones to judge everyone and to convict all of them of all the ungodly acts they have committed in their ungodliness. And of all the defiant words ungodly sinners have spoken against him. These people are grumblers and fault finders. They follow their own evil desires. They boast about themselves and flatter others for their own advantage. But dear friends, remember what the apostles of our Lord Jesus foretold. They said to you, in the last times there will be scoffers who will follow their own ungodly desires. These are the people who divide you, who follow mere natural instincts and do not have the Spirit. But you, dear friends, by building yourselves up, 
in your most holy faith, then praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in God's love as you wait for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ to bring you to eternal life. Be merciful to those who doubt. Save others by snatching them from the fire. To others show mercy mixed with fear, hating even clothing stained by corrupted flesh. To him who is able to keep you from stumbling and to present you before his glorious presence without fault and with great joy. To the only God, our Savior, be glory, majesty, power, and authority through Jesus Christ, our Lord, before all ages, now and forevermore. Amen. Would you join me in prayer as we look into God's word this morning? Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and your grace to us. I thank you for the truth of your word. And Lord, we believe and declare this morning that all scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable. So God, I pray that you would speak to us this morning through these words. Lord, that they would be profitable for us. That they would would help us to understand better who you are and how you would have us to live in this world. Lord, that they would help us to have open eyes to the struggles that we face and to those that, that, that might seek to, to lead us down different paths, to follow maybe even different saviors. God, speak to us in these moments. Help us to understand you better and to better follow you as a result. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, the first question that we've got to answer as we look at the book of Jude is, who is Jude? Who was this guy? It's not, it's not like the Apostle Paul where there, there's extant writings in, in the book of Acts that explains to us exactly who Paul was and how his missionary journeys functioned. It, it's not like we see a whole lot of information about him in the Gospels that, that give us the information about how he walked with Jesus and how he learned the things that he learned. There's, there's not a whole lot that's in the Bible about Jude other than Jude's own book. So who, who is this Jude? Well, he tells us at the beginning, he tells us that he is Jude a servant of Jesus Christ, and a brother of James. Well, what, what do these things mean, and what exactly do they tell us? Well, the first thing that I see in Jude is that we need to remember to whom we belong. Remember to whom you belong. It's a really simple thing, and, and we, we often want to read over these introductions and go straight on to the meat of what he's saying, but Jude gives us a pretty, pretty detailed glance into who he was and how he viewed himself in this brief introduction. It's a reminder to remember to whom we belong. Remember whose we are. Humility should be a trademark of followers of Jesus Christ. Now, that's, that doesn't mean that we don't stand in confidence. That doesn't mean we don't confidently de- declare the truth as God has revealed it to us. It doesn't mean that, that we don't accept compliments. It doesn't mean that we're not um, confident, in our ability, confident in our abilities and, and our, our functions in the world. But it does affect how we view ourselves in light of Christ. And Jude provides this info to identify exactly who he was, because just as we don't know who Jude is, perhaps those to whom he was writing didn't know him all that well. So he's identifying himself to his audience and establishing his authority in these first couple of verses. The truth is that his name was not actually Jude. His name was Judas. Judas. Now you might think to yourself, well, why does it say Jude in the Bible? Well, following the the realities of Judas in the gospel, when the, 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 those that were compiling and putting together the New Testament, they thought to themselves, it probably would be better if we disambiguate who this Jude was so that they, people didn't think, well, this is the Judas that, that betrayed Jesus. That's not what it's saying. 
And they're not really concerned with that. As a matter of fact, first century disciples did not care about who had the name Judas. The fact is, the disciples of Ju- Ju- Jesus, there are actually three Judases. We've talked about this briefly before, and you, you may look at the Bible and say, well, I don't see that there. But historical record do tell us that they, there were three Judases. There was Judas Iscariot, Simon, also known, or Thaddeus, also known Judas, and Thomas, the twin, was actually named Judas as well, according to historical record. Judas was the name. Being called Judas was, was just a popular name. It was like being called John or, or Bill. Uh, common names that, that you just see a lot. No offense to any John and Bills in the room, but you know that there are a lot of John and Bills, right? Just a really common name often used. And so Jude is disambiguating. Well, which Jude is this? And why should we listen? Well, he gives us a few, few details. The first detail Jude gives in verse 1 is this, is that he is Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. This is really simple and something that we might jump through, and, and you might even think that I'm overemphasizing that, and, and that's okay. But I love the fact that the first thing that Jude tells us as he is giving us this letter he's about to write is that he is a servant of Jesus Christ. Of first importance to Jude is his connection to Jesus. Before he says anything else, he says, hey, I'm, I'm connected to Jesus. Well, in the word that, that we have translated here in our text, most of our texts say Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. The word actually used in Greek is doulos. Doulos. Now, this word is, can be translated a lot of different ways. In Jude, a, a doulos did do service But a doulos was not just a servant or a bond servant. A doulos was a slave. Jude says, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Well, Dr. Herb Bateman, uh, a Greek scholar, and consequently, he was also Nathan and my Greek professor, has written a book about the book of Jude. And in his book, he notes that translating the word doulos as servant or bondservant loses some of the significance and the historical um, context of what that word really meant. Because it wasn't just someone in the service of others. It wasn't someone who was being paid for service. It wasn't just the action that the person was doing. It was uh, the identification of how that person was to be seen by the broader context of society. A doulos wasn't just a servant. They were a slave. The word communicates legal status. That the person is viewed as a lower level of humanity than the master. A doulos had no rights, none, zero rights at all. They were duty bound to their owners and masters. To whom their allegiance was pledged and they were their property. Jude leads off by saying, I am a slave of Jesus Christ. Before you see anything else about me, before I say anything about myself and why you should listen to me, the first thing you need to know is that I am firmly aligned with Jesus. He takes all of my allegiance. He owns me. I am his property. And so I am duty bound to do what Christ has called me to do. 
He belongs to Jesus. He owes everything he has to Jesus. He has been purchased by the blood of Christ. This is important for us. I think that we need to remember this early and often, that the first thing that should identify us to the world around us should be our alliance and our allegiance with Jesus Christ. Our relationship to him should be the defining feature of our lives, that we belong, we are in fact slaves of Jesus Christ, duty-bound to do his will in the world. Jude is a slave of Jesus. But he goes on, he says, I'm also the brother of James. Now we talked about this briefly last week at the end of, of, of Romans. Actually, it wasn't brief, it was the context of the sermon, that name-dropping, much like now, was not uncommon back then. That they would, they would create the authority of what they're about to say by creating a connection with someone of greater authority that would be more recognizable. And Jude does the same thing that Paul does for the Roman Christians for his audience here by identifying himself as the, quote, brother of James. Now for you and I, we read this and we're like, okay, James was yet another common name as we look at the Bible. So which James? Which James are we talking about here, Jude? Well, James, this is not the apostle James. That might be our first thought. Well, maybe it was James the apostle, you know, the the son of thunder, the brother of John, one of the two closest disciples of Jesus. It cannot be, it cannot be James the son of thunder. Because James the son of thunder, the brother of John, never had time to become prominent. You know why? Because pretty soon after Jesus died, he was run through with a sword. He was actually the first of the apostles, the original 12, to be martyred for Jesus. So he, he doesn't take, that, that James didn't take a prominent role in the development of the early church. So it's got to be a different James. Which, which James would it be? Well, James wasn't just a prominent name in the early church. In Jerusalem, it was the name in the church. If you go to Acts chapter 15, we're not going to turn over there right now, but later if you have a chance to go read, you'll, you'll realize that the most prominent of the apostles in the Jerusalem church, in the Jerusalem council, the most prominent voice in the Jerusalem council was not Peter. It wasn't John. In fact, it wasn't any of the original 12 apostles, but instead it was James the elder who was James the brother of Jesus. James is the one that says, hey, this is what, these are the restrictions we give to Christians. We don't, we don't ask these Gentile Christians to do anything other than these few things. And he's the one that, that authorizes the letter that Paul then takes back to, to the Gentile churches. And historical record tells us that this James, the brother of Jesus, was the highest ranking official in the early church. He is also the James that authored the book of the Bible by that name. Jude. I'm the brother of James. Which also gives us a hint as to where Jude is sending this letter. If he's sending it to someone that, that all he has to say is the name James and everybody automatically knows that this is who James is. These are people that had to have been common or have a common understanding about this James and a respect for them that he can just drop the name without any further clarification. They'd be like, oh, okay. The odds are that he is sending this letter back to Judea so they would know this name. Now, that does bring to attention, and I've kind of, our attention, and I've kind of mentioned it, one of the facts that Jude conveniently leaves out. That Jude is not just a servant of Jesus, and he's not just 
He's not just a brother of James, but he is the physical half-brother of Jesus. I don't know about you all, but I probably would have led with that one. <laughs> right? I'm Jude. I'm Jesus' kid brother. Right? You got to listen to me. He, he, not only does Jude not lead with that, he never mentions it through the entirety of the book. Doesn't even touch on it at all. And if you go back to the book of James and look at that, it's an interesting thing about James too. James never mentions explicitly that he is the brother of Jesus. Something that we know through historical record. Neither Jude nor James directly identify themselves as the brothers of Jesus. Instead, they recognize that he is the prominent one as God and King, and that they serve him. There's a great amount of humility in that. He sees himself as first and foremost above all else a servant. He models the mindset of Christ that we often reference in Philippians chapter 2 when it says, In your relationship with one another, have the same mindset of Jesus Christ, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be used to his own advantage. Rather, he made himself nothing, taking on the very nature of a slave, being made in human likeness and being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. Jude says, listen, I've got really nothing, nothing of, of consequence about me in and of myself to make you listen to me. Just know these two things. I have a brother who you've trusted and who has led you, and, and I'm sending this to you, hoping that you'll listen to me just like you've listened to him. But above and beyond all else, I am a slave to Jesus Christ, duty-bound to do as he has called me to do. We should own that same humility. Understanding that obedience to the Father, obedience to the Savior and Master Jesus Christ should be of utmost importance to us. We must know our role so that we can experience the grace of God. Paul Jude goes on from being, to, telling who he is to, to addressing his audience, to those who have been called, who are loved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Now again, he, I've already noted that he, he's sending this to a Jewish audience, the, these Jewish Christians that are spread throughout Judea. Whatever the case may be with his original audience, Jude reminds them three times over whose they are. He reminds them that they are called, that they are loved, and that they are preserved or kept for Jesus Christ. I've told this story again before, but I think it's important to tell it again. Uh, Mrs. Clem was a teacher in, in my high school, and Mrs. Clem's tagline, any time that we would leave to go do something, wasn't, hey, break a leg. It wasn't, hey, play hard. It wasn't, hey, put, leave it all on the floor. Mrs. Clem, the last thing that she would say to us as we would get on the bus and leave to go off to another place to play, or before we left the locker room to go out on the court, Mrs. Clem would always tell us, remember whose you are. Remember whose you are. I, I, I didn't make a lot of sense to me. I understood what she meant when I was a kid, but it didn't become as important to me until I, I, it was later in life. Be, because I, I, being a very competitive individual, of first importance to me was not necessarily remembering who I was, but dominating the opponent. 
Right? It's, it's not worth playing if you can't win. That, that was, I always wanted to go in and I remembered who I played for being that I played for Elkhart Christian Academy. And I wanted to destroy and dominate whoever we played so that they knew that we were better than them. I wanted to help them realize how, how much better we were by our, our standard of play. And sure, we wanted to do our best not to, to put too much of a blemish on the jersey or on Jesus. But that was not of primary importance. And if we're honest... We, we may not talk about it at the stadium, but most of us are not too concerned about the name on the jersey so much as we are the score on the board. I've listened to some of you yell at the refs. I've heard some of you yelling at the team down there. And I, can I just tell you something right now? The team is not listening to you. Like there's no player on the field that heard and is listening and says, oh, Derek Barley just told me I need to play harder. He's right. Now, I've never heard Derek Barley yelling at the team, so in fairness, there's no ref up there, there's no ref listening to you thinking, well, I just heard Miss Karen say that I needed to ref better. I, she's right. I really missed that call. No ref on the field cares what you're saying. And given the distance, they probably can't even hear you. They just hear like the, they hear the Peanuts teacher. Wah, 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 wah. But you know who can hear you? All the little eyes and ears that are running around the stands. Your kids that are sitting just a few rows down. The student section that very much oftentimes emulates your attitudes and actions. Maybe this is something that, and I, this is why I bring this up. Maybe this is something that I need to remind you of. That we need to remember whose we are. That even with something as simple as sitting at a football or a basketball game, we are representing not just Seymour, Indiana, not just First Baptist Church. For, forget all of those things. We are representing our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. And as Jude himself points out, we have been called. We, we have a purpose. God, God has a plan for us in a way that he wants to use us in the world. Jude says, remember whose you are. You, you are called. Th those who believe enter into to Christ's service as citizens of his kingdom and members of his family by divine invitation. And just like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, we are called to a new and better life by grace through faith in Jesus. And when people see and experience interaction with us, they should experience that connection and that calling. We are called. Jude goes on. He says, we are loved by God the Father. The love of God is made available by his choice and through his effort to his chosen people. His love is not given because we earned it, but by his grace and for his glory. We are loved by God and kept for Jesus Christ. In the same way that we are loved by God, our salvation and that love was not earned, our salvation is not maintained by our own effort. Our salvation and standing before God is preserved through his power and presence in our lives. And in our own efforts, just as we cannot save ourselves through our own efforts, we don't maintain it through our own efforts. It's only through aligning ourselves and focusing our attention on Jesus Christ that we are allowed and able to live the life to which he's called us. In our own strength, 
And by our own legacy, we will fall short. It is only through Jesus that we are kept for Jesus. Our entire life as followers of Jesus are by faith through grace. It's how our salvation is bestowed. And it is by grace that our faith is preserved amidst the chaos of conflicting voices that call to us. Now it's interesting to me when historically we, we, we believe that the book of Jude was written. It's believed that Jude was writing his letter sometime around 65 A.D. Now, if we look back historically, we realize that 65, 70 A.D. was not a good time for Jerusalem. That there was a lot of, of upheaval, and we're going to talk about that uh, as we go throughout the book, but there was th this rebellion that was beginning to take shape. In 70 A.D., the temple was destroyed, and the prophecy that Jesus had made that not one stone will stand upon another had come to pass. So here Jude is using what we would call eschatological or end times terminology. Jude, and this is, this is really interesting to me because here we are, less than a hundred years removed from Jesus. And you know what writers of the New Testament were saying? We're living in the end times. This is the end. This is it. Jesus is coming soon. Jesus is going to come maybe before the next Christmas. That's I told you. That's what my pastor always used to say. I believe before next Christmas, Jesus might well come. And you know what? That's true. Before this Christmas, it's possible that Jesus might come. The return of Christ is imminent. But people have been screaming the end times since the time that Jesus left. And it may or may not be the case that Christ will come in our lifetime. But the fact is, from the point when Jesus left to the point that he returns, he could return at any time. So every day is the end times. And the reality of the rise and fall of political and, and, and relational struggles within the world and wars and rumor of wars and pestilences and diseases, these are all parts of what's going on. And Jesus says, hey, these things are going to keep happening, but, but still more is going to happen before I come. Jesus also says, you don't know the time or date. But Jude, like the rest of the writers of the Bible, is encouraging us, hey, know that, that we are living in what could potentially be the end times, and we need to work as if the end could be tomorrow. We need to live out our faith. Today is what we have to live in the calling that God has given us, to, to communicate the love of God, not just for us, in us, and through us, but to the world and we can't be afraid of the potential of end times. We, there's nowhere in the Bible does it say that we're to be scared of the Antichrist. As a matter of fact, the Bible's very clear that we shouldn't be afraid. Because once again, I'm all about winning. We don't lose. Right? You, you know that, that it doesn't matter which enemy is out there in the world. Ultimately, Jesus still wins. Even as we talk about contending, we're going we're gonna to look at this here in just a minute, but, but when, it, when Jude says contending for the faith, it is true that you or I could lose, but Jesus does not. In Christianity, the, those that follow Christ, we win in the end. You do know that, right? It's not really a question. It's not that good and evil are going back and forth and that evil is going to win and that the good is losing and, and Jesus is losing. That's not how it works. Jesus has already won. And that's where our hope is. Our hope is not in some, some nebulous concept of Jesus might be able to pull this off because he's stronger. No, he's already won. 
It's not like Notre Dame against Marshall where they choke and lose a game that they should have won easily. Jesus has already taken care of business. The victory is assured. We are kept for Jesus and by Jesus. Like Jude himself, we are but humble slaves in the service of our God and our King. We are duty-bound to do as our benevolent Lord has called us. And in times like these, whatever they may be, we must lean hard into Christ in order that we might continue to experience his abounding mercy, his peace that passes all understanding, and his unconditional and enduring love. Which is how Jude ends his introduction. He says, mercy, peace, and love be yours in abundance. Well, how do we have that mercy, peace, and love? Well, we focus on the purveyor of those things. We focus on Jesus. It's just two simple verses. But every aspect of these verses, as Jude begins, is saying, remember Jesus. Look to Christ. Keep your eyes on Christ, your King and Messiah, your Savior. And Jude is going to return to these ideas that he's laid out in verses 1 and 2 throughout. They, They aren't just random verses, but Jude, as a good public speaker, laying out, this is what I'm about to tell you. He's creating an outline of what's about to come. But the reminder is clear. We can only stand strong in the faith. So long as we keep our, our, our focus on Jesus Christ. That's what Jude is going to tell us over and over and over again as he goes through this book. He's told us to remember to whom we belong. And now he's going to encourage us to hold tight to him. That we should hold tight to Christ. We should grip on to him and hold on with everything that we have. Now Jude is, is going to tell us over and over again that there is but one Messiah. There's only one Messiah and Lord. Let's look quickly at verses 3 through 4. He says, Dear friends, although I was eager to write to you about the salvation we share, I felt compelled to write and urge you to contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. For certain individuals whose condemnation was written about long ago have secretly slipped in among you. They are ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into a license for immorality. And don't miss this part here at the end. This is, this is I think, the, the important, most important part of this. And deny Jesus Christ as our only sovereign and Lord. There is but one Messiah and Lord, and his name is Jesus. Now, Jude tells us that he had a desire to write an an encouraging note, right? He says, I had every intention to write you a note about our shared faith. His intention was to write a note to to tell them and, and to encourage them to keep living in that faith. But something has happened that causes Jude to reroute. It's much, you've ever used one of these phones, right, where you, you have Siri or a GPS and, and they're telling you where to go. Have you ever got off course? You ever been off course when, when, when you drive or have you ever, and I will confess that this is me, decided that you know better than Siri. You have been here before and so you understand the route that would be best and most efficient and so you ignore what the GPS is telling you and you go your own way. Have you ever gotten so deep into it as you go that Siri no longer says rerouting and Siri just says, turn around and go back? 
You ever been there before? Siri's like, do a U-turn, do a U-turn, do a U-turn. I'm telling you, do a U-turn. Your only option, there's no rerouting that you can keep going forward and get where you're going. Turn around and go back where you started. It's kind of what Judah's doing here. He's like, hey, this isn't a simple reroute. I want to draw your attention to where you started, and let's go from there. Rerouting. Jude, as he's writing to these dear friends or, or better stated beloved ones, dearly loved ones, says, I, I wanted to just write you this encouraging note about our faith, but situations have arisen such that I need to warn you about what's going on around you. I need to draw your attention to this so that we can point you back to Jesus. The revelation of a major issue required a complete and quick reroute. And the urgency of the situation left Jude no option but to adjust course and address the issue at hand. And Jude tells them the common and popular verse from the book of Jude. He says, contend for the faith that was once for all entrusted to God's holy people. What does he mean by that? What does he mean by contending for the faith, right? Like that's, that's the common title when, when you see sermons on Jude, fight for the faith. And I'll be honest, that's where we thought we were going to go at first. But as you look, Jude is less concerned with us throwing hands with the enemy than he is, what voices are we listening to? Which faith are we developing? Which faith are we really trying to hold on to? And Jude tells them, contend for the faith once entrust for all entrusted. Now the picture that Jude is using here, as he says, once for all entrusted, actually brings to, to mind the idea of a marriage. It's actually one of my favorite parts of a wedding. I love the part where I'm standing here down at the front, right? I'm standing here, and I'm standing with the groom, and the music kicks on, and all of the people come, and they, they stand up here, and then the bride comes, right? The, the song changes, and the bride makes her way down, and inevitably we get to this point, and I'm like reaching for the handkerchief because homeboy is crying, and like looking, and it's, it's funny sometimes watching them trying to make themselves cry because that's what they're supposed to do. And so we get there. And what's not often noticed is, and it's a technicality that I am, I am firm on, is that as we stand here and the, the, the bride and groom comes in, it's very important to me that the father or whoever, the, the son or whoever it is that's walking the bride down, that that person is in between the bride and the groom. And when they get to the front, they stand there. And whomever it is that has walked the bride down the aisle is standing there. And you have the, the, you have the bride, you have the father of, or the, of the bride or brother or mother, and then you have the groom. And then the question is asked. What's the question? That the first question that's asked at the beginning of a wedding. Who gives this woman to be married to this man? And then the person says, her mother and I, her family and I. Now, this is the part that's easy to miss. Now, watch it next time. The father will take that bride's hand, and after hugging her and shaking the husband-to-be's hand, he will take the hand of the bride and place it in the hand of the husband-to-be. It gives me chills every time. Now, I get that this is not popular in the modern feminist era. I, I get that. But there is a sense, I like the imagery of, hey, I'm going to take care of her and she's going to take care of me. I am placing, as a father of a young woman who, God help me, is nearing marriage age uh, five to ten years down the road. 
there is a very real sense that when I put my daughter's hand into the hand of that man, he better understand that I just gave him the most precious thing in my life. And I better know above and beyond all else that he's going to hold tightly to that hand. And he's going to protect and care for her and do whatever he can to hold tight to her that they might walk through this life together. And yes, it is understood that she needs to take care of him as well. But as the father of the bride, I'm less concerned about that. (laughs) This is the imagery that Jude is giving. He's saying it's much in the same way that, hey, what was placed in your hand, you hold on to that. You hold on to it with all you've got. Understand that what God has placed in your hand through his word and his apostles is of utmost value. Do not let it go. Care for it. Love it. Now Jude also, he says, to contend for this faith that was once entrusted, this faith that was placed into our hands. Well, this word contend is only used, this exact word is only used one time in the entirety of the New Testament. And this is it. This is the only time that this word appears in the Bible. the 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 word paints the picture of a gymnasium and wrestling. But the word is the word the word that's used is the word from which we get our word to agonize. That, that internally we're holding on and that, that, that everything that we're, we have, that we're exerting every bit of our energy in this, this, this effort that we're putting out. Now, the, the picture though that's painted, the fighting that is being described, is less about defeating the opponent than holding on with all one's might. The two things go together. It's not that James says, hey, throw hands with anything, anyone that would do wrong to this. No, what James says is, is, hey, these other things are going to be going on around you, which he's going to describe here in a moment. But he says, in the midst of all of these battles, in the midst of all of these rebellions, in the midst of all these voices, you hold on to the faith in Christ that you were given with all that you have. Don't let anyone remove your grip. It brings to my mind the, the story in the Old Testament where Jacob is, is sleeping and he sees this, this angel of the Lord. And so he grabs a hold of the angel of the Lord and he refuses to let go throughout the entirety of the night. Now, we, we could argue that Jacob actually loses that fight, right? The angel flitters off to heaven and, Jew, and, and Jacob walks the rest of his life with a limp. He loses that fight. But he gets the blessing. He grips a hold and he refuses to let go because he knows that what what that angel of the Lord has to offer is of utmost importance. Brothers and sisters, I've already talked about it. We we don't win or lose the fight. Christ has got that covered. But there is a sense where we, a very real sense in which we should hold on with everything we have to what has been given that is of so much importance. Jude actually is going to explain this out to us as he goes. That's a reminder to us that our methods can and will change as we follow Christ, as we seek to share the gospel that has been entrusted to us. But the message must remain the same. The methods can change and we can try all these new innovative things, but in the end it ultimately must point people to Jesus or it is of no value. And we see in the text that someone is messing with the message. 
According to Jude in verse 4, they were, quote, perverting the grace of God. They pervert the grace of God into license for immorality. And they deny that Jesus is the Messiah and Lord. These are common issues Paul even talks about. And, and, and it makes us wonder, well, it makes me wonder, who are these enemies? What is the issue that Jude is trying to get these people to fight against? What is the heresy? What is the problem? And we know that the root of it is that these people are using the faith of Jesus and the grace of God, this idea, Paul talks about it, that, that the grace of God, because all of our sins are forgiven and salvation is not earned, well, I can just go sin all I want because that sin then demonstrates the greatness of God's grace. Paul says, that's just ridiculous. Stop. But the, the issue of denying that Jesus is the Savior and Lord, this is a major, major issue. We, we throw a lot around a lot of times in conservative circles. The word heresy is thrown around a lot. This is the ultimate heresy. To deny Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. So who were the potential enemies that Jude is addressing? There are three prominent options that scholars will point to. I warned you, I did warn you that we were going to go nerdy today. Here are the three options. They are Christian false teachers, the Gnostics, and zealots. Let's briefly look at each. The first is Christian false teachers. Now these teachers are believed to have been what is known as antinomianism, antinomianists. Everybody say that word with me. And the word is, I will say it first and then you can try because I just struggled with it here. Antinomianism. Okay, everybody ready? Antinomianism. Now, antinomianism is that, that this exactly what he says. It's the, the, the very root definition of the first issue. That there is no law. There are no rules that God has undone the law before, be, be, through Jesus. And, and that there is a moral freedom to do whatever one wants in light of the grace of God. They, in fact, denied that Jesus saved people from their sins and, in fact, argued that Jesus saved people so they could sin. As such, Christ would then have no expectations for the Christian life. Sin away. Do whatever you want. Trust Jesus and do whatever you want. These are the Christian, that was the predominant Christian false teaching that would be addressed as we consider the rest of what Jude writes. Second option is the Gnostics. Now the Gnostics believed that God was unrevealed and unknowable. And that the, the physical world was 100% evil. That there was nothing good in the physical world. They further believed that the physical world was not created by God Almighty, the one true God, but that the physical world was created through demonic powers and at the behest of Satan himself. This included everything from the table that I'm preaching from to the sky above us to my very own body. Everything physical was evil. And so the ultimate goal of true people of faith True people that had special knowledge was to escape the physical world. Well, as a result, if we believe that the entire physical order that was created is demonic in nature and, and created at the behest of Satan, well, then Jesus cannot be both physical, have literally lived, and be perfect. 
So Gnostics believed that Jesus did not actually live physically. That Jesus was a spiritual aberration sent by the one true God to reveal to us the way to escape our physical temporal prisons. And that the way that we did that was by, by being abreast and, and understanding the, the spiritual dynamics around us. And to escape even into our own spirit that we might one day finally break out to experience God's full grace in heaven. But there is nothing, nothing beneficial in the physical world. One specific branch of the Gnostics inverted morality, meaning they turned it all around, and sin became virtuous and abstinence immoral. These, these Gnostics upheld Old Testament villains as being people of faith that we should follow and emulate, including Cain, Sodom, and Korah, which is whom is addressed later in the chapters of Jude. They also held as their ultimate hero, Judas Iscariot. These are the Gnostics. Finally, is the Zealots. Now we know of the Zealots because Jesus himself had one Zealot in his team, Simon the Zealot. The Zealots were a prominent group of Judean rebels throughout the first century. And never did, in the height of their power came, wait for it, around 65 A.D. And they were all over the Judean countryside. They, they were known for being incredibly violent and murdering political tar targets and those they saw as collaborators with the Roman overlords. They carried small, easily concealable knives known as sicarii. And they used these to meet out their wrath upon enemies. They believed, like many people of Jesus' day, that the Messiah would come in political power and violently overthrow their oppressors, bringing about restoration of the kingdom of David and instituting a powerful messianic rule. But we can see where that would create problems with their understanding of Jesus. Jesus turned that all on his head. It's hard to look up to a Messiah as a political overthrower who his methodology for bringing about salvation was sacrifice and crucifixion where the symbol of this messianic savior is crucifixion the ultimate tool of the empire how could this messiah lead them into battle this messiah that has already lost so they denied that jesus was the messiah and these zealots at the time were recruiting and coercing ethnic Jews throughout Judea to join their rebellion. Their morals were known to be detestable because they had no law and they felt they answered to nobody. They emulated villains of the Old Testament in the same way and emulated them in many ways. They were a political group seeking freedom from the Romans and freedom from the, Jew, from the Jewish puppets who governed the people of Israel through religious regulations. Now we have these three different groups. Any of them have some, group, some matter of merits. But the most likely, given the fact that Jude is writing to people in and around Jerusalem who would know of his brother, people throughout Judea, is not Gnostics, because Gnosticism was a problem that, that emerged sometime, some 200 years later. Two, well, 200 years after Jesus, 200, 200 AD. 
it's likely not these antinomianists because those, that was a primarily a Gentile Greek issue. So the most likely option is that these are zealots who are trying to recruit these Jewish Christians to their cause saying there has got to be another better Messiah. It can't be this Jesus who was crucified. He was put into a grave. Where is he now? How is he going to lead us to ultimate victory? How can he be the king that will forever sit upon David's throne? He's not here now. And so they were making their way into the church, recruiting Christians to join their cause. And not just recruiting, but, but coercing them through the threat of violence. Again, Herb Bateman writes this concerning the various options. There are no pseudo-prefix nouns as typically employed in the designating of opposition groups such as false prophets or false brothers or false teachers and false apostles. Neither are they called liars as is noted in Revelation 2. Those about whom Jude writes are explicitly described in Jude 8, 10, and 11, and 16 as rebels. In all likelihood, Judean Christians were being coerced, pressured, and perhaps even explicitly threatened to join the national revolt against Rome, which may have been inspired by messianic hopes and aspirations for the reestablishment of Israel's kingdom. Again, Jude was written around 65 AD to Christians with close ties to Jerusalem. And in AD 70, we know that Jewish zealots did revolt against Rome, leading to a bloodbath and the destruction of the temple and Jerusalem, as Jesus foretold. Whatever the false teaching was, the message remains the same for you and I today. Keep your eyes on Christ. There will always be those that try to come in and add Jesus plus something else. There will always be the threat of, of becoming confused by, by amalgamations of the message that seem like truth but aren't quite there. And so what you and I need to do as followers of Christ, as we contend for the faith, is hold to the faith once delivered. Does it align with the truth of Scripture? Does it point us to the truth of Christ, Him crucified and risen and coming again? And anything that detracts from the reality of who Jesus is as our Savior and King is unworthy and unbecoming a follower of Christ. Remember whose you are. The truth is, in the world in which we live, there is no shortage of conflicting messages. There is no shortage of those who seek to confuse the message of the gospel and to use it for their own ends. Jude's point as he gets started and his point as it will be throughout is to keep our focus on Jesus Christ. He's not encouraging us to throw hands with our enemies or to destroy those who would deceive and mislead us. Rather, Jude is calling these first century believers and he is calling us to keep our focus on Christ. To humbly and faithfully serve our one true king. And to boldly share his gospel even in the face of risk and danger when it goes against the cultural current of the day. Like Jude himself, we aren't called to serve ourselves and our own sinful desires, but are duty-bound slaves of Jesus, called to seek his glory and stand firm of the go- in the gospel of his salvation. It's all about Jesus. Father God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace. I thank you for the truth of your word that we've looked at today. 
Lord, may we see the point that whatever the enemy, whomever the enemy might be in our world today, that we are ultimately called to serve and follow Jesus. May that be our, our, our first and foremost end in life to serve and represent Jesus well, to hold tightly to his gospel of salvation by grace through faith, to be reminded over and over again that it is he we serve and to him our lives should point. God, I thank you so much for your goodness and grace to us. Help us to remember Christ and the cross on which he died and to be encouraged as we try to follow you today and every day. In Jesus' name, amen.